All right, we're going to study Scripture together, so if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open that up to the New Testament book of 1 Peter. And so we're walking through this series called Unstoppable that's moving through verse by verse and chapter by chapter through this letter written 64, 65 A.D. by the Apostle Peter. I said this a couple of weeks ago to kind of give us a, um, a big picture of what this letter is aiming at. Kind of here's the aim of 1 Peter the advancement of the gospel through quietly dignified and godly Christians who bear witness to a hope that outlasts the fading glories of this world. So it is, a, it is an incredibly relevant letter for us as Christians. Uh, one of my favorite authors is a Scottish theologian and pastor by the name of Sinclair Ferguson. Um, he said many years ago to his congregation, he said, if I offered you a book that would take you 20 minutes to read, and if I told you that if you master this book and if you're mastered by it, you will live a f- fruitful life as a Christian, he said, I hope you'd want to read it. And then he said, the name of that book is First Peter. And he might have been taking his cue from the old German reformer back in the 16th century, Martin Luther, who said much earlier, quote, this letter contains virtually everything you need to know about the Christian life. God's word, friends, is profoundly relevant. And what we've seen these past few weeks is that Peter is moving in an order, right? There's an intentional flow of thought. He's, he begins by talking about that most transformative relationship the Christian has, which is the relationship we have with the triune God. That's how he begins, right out of the gate, right? You, having purified your souls by your obedience to truth, right? That's where we're going to get in just a moment. But he begins in chapter one by talking about the work of the Spirit, the work of God the Son, the work of God the Father. So he begins in our relationship with God, and then we come to our text, and he says, now we've got this relationship with one another in the church, and that's going to prepare us to live intentionally in relationship with the world. So he's moving in that order, our vertical relationship, and then our family relationship, and then our missional relationship in the world. So we're going to see that, I hope, together in this passage Follow along with me. I'm going to read chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other, from a pure heart, love one another constantly, because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Now he's going to quote from the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. Therefore, so ignore the chapter breaks. Chapter breaks didn't come into your Bible until the 13th century. So ignore the chapter breaks. They're not really well placed here. He's, he's in the same flow of thought in chapter 2. So the word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted 
that the Lord is good. So imagine for a moment that you're a missionary living outside of your home country. And most of the people don't know Jesus. The people that you're living in their community now, they don't know Jesus. Maybe many of them have never even heard about Jesus or what he's done in dying on the cross for our sins and rising again from the dead. They don't know that. But, but now you're, you're moved into that city and you're relating to your neighbors and you're living as a light in that community and you're making friends and you're starting relationships and you're having meals and you're shining as a light for Christ in that part of the world. And then you, you get closer in that friendship and you share the hope that you have in Jesus Christ with one of your neighbors. And over time, the more you share that hope, the more she's leaning forward in that conversation and eventually she says, I want this. I can see this in your life. I want to follow this same Savior. I want to do it. And I, I've started to read some of these words in the, in the Gospels, and I, I see how believers would be baptized, and so I want to be baptized. And so out you go into, into the waters, and there's this rich, right, this, the, the symbolism of Christian baptism is so rich. You go and you find an obliging lake somewhere, and you say, this is, this is where it all begins, right? And you, you're out there in the water, and then you're going to, which is the symbolism of baptism, you're going to bury her. You're going you're gonna to send her under into this watery coffin, as it were, and then you're going to bring her up into new life. That's the picture that's on display. And so down she goes, and then she comes up into this newness of life, this beautiful picture of what's old is gone and what's new has, has come and it's arrived. And there she is, water dripping, pouring down her face, and she turns to you and says, now what? Here's, here's what just happened. You, you just baptized her into what Peter calls exile. She, she no longer shares her primary identity with her community. Her new primary identity is the kingdom of God, citizenship in heaven, the family of God. You're her brother, you're her sister in Christ. There's this fundamentally new identity and now it feels like she doesn't belong in the world. She's living under the policies of the kingdom that's not of this world. The dictates of another king, right? Well, here's the thing. Many scholars believe that the backdrop of 1 Peter was originally a sermon at someone's baptism in the first century. And they take that because some of the original language that's used here in Peter uh, is language that was associated in the early church with the baptismal liturgy of the early believers. And so they think maybe this began as a sermon where the water was just dripping off of a brand new believer in a hostile culture. Whether that's a fact or not, the interesting thing is, if you go back and you read 1 Peter in that light, you see this is unusually fitting for someone who just came into the faith as a brand new Christian and who sees a world that's ready to push against that faith, a hostile environment. Peter writes to a pre-Christian culture. The gospel hasn't established its footing in that kind of way. We're not 
too far away from that anymore if you're paying attention to the movements, developments in our culture where we are, as many sociologists, Christian sociologists and otherwise, have, have seen that this is becoming, our country here is becoming an increasingly post-Christian culture. So he's writing to a pre-Christian culture. We're living in a post-Christian culture. One of the best-selling books in our new century is a book entitled, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. You just look and listen around what people say about Christians these days. We're not kind of on top of the world. They're not asking us, what's your opinion? They're like, you bunch of fools. You bunch of pre-scientific bigots. You're on the wrong side of history, right? That's, that's the situation in which we live. Increased hostility, pushback in our culture. And our passage holds something up for us. It says, as a Christian, you have the living an abiding word of God. You have everything you need to move forward in this culture shining for Christ right here. And as a church committed to abiding biblically, right? That's our first value, abiding biblically. We pursue transformation. We're committed to the truthfulness, the inerrancy, the infallibility, the authority, the clarity, the, the sufficiency of God's word. We believe this, right? Since we believe that, this passage, friends, takes us to the very foundation of our faith. When we ask the question, what does God's word do? How does God's word equip you and me, as followers of Jesus, to live faithfully in this world? Number one, what God's word does for us, it gives us life. It gives us life. Peter says, you've been born again. You see those words? Through the living and abiding word of God. God's word has brought us to life. R.C. Sproul, a great teacher who passed away just recently, and he would teach God's word in so many different environments, and people would always come up to him, and they would say, Dr. Sproul, you make God's word come alive, and he had a quick, snappy response. He said, no, God's word makes me come alive. I don't make it come alive. It makes me come alive. You look at stories in history, and there are probably similar stories right here in this room. Stories like Martin Luther in the 16th century. Utterly transformed. What happened? He read one verse of the Bible. He read Romans 1.17, and when it clicked, he said it was like the gates of paradise opened. He's got one verse in front of him. Romans 1.17. Augustine lived a, a life of an absolute profligate. He embraced every pleasure in this world outside of Christ and ran headlong into the world and sin. And Augustine then encountered Romans 13, or Romans 13 encountered him. He read Romans 13, verse 12 through 14. He was dead to God before he read the first word in verse 12. He was alive by, by the time he finished reading verse 14. Three verses changed the man. God's word makes us come alive. We're born again through the living and abiding word of God. This is in your notes. We aren't what we were before. Matter of fact, Augustine bumped into one of his previous flings. He was walking down the beach. He was a, the bishop eventually in North Africa. He was walking down the beach after he came to faith in Christ. And one of his old flings said, she walked saw him and she said, Augustine, do you not realize it is I, 
And he said, yes, but it's not I. He'd been utterly changed by Christ. We're not what we were before. This metaphor, if the metaphor of rebirth means anything, it means we're not what we were before. It's a totally new start. You've been born again through the living and abiding word of God. Peter says we've been transformed by a message that we've heard and the spirit made us respond to it, right? Verse 22, what does he call that message? He calls it the truth. And then he changes it. He calls that message in verse 23, the word of God. Verse 25, he, the message is referred to as the word of the Lord. And then verse 25, this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. This word, the, the word of the Lord, the word of God, the truth that you obeyed, all of this, I'm talking about the gospel. There again, that shouldn't surprise us when the apostle Paul said, you know what the gospel does? The gospel is charged with divine power to save those who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so it's this gospel message that's in view all along in this text. It's the gospel that's bringing the change into the life of the Christian. What is the gospel? The gospel is the message about what God has done in sending his son Jesus The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, broke in on planet Earth. He was born as a man. He lived a perfect life, obedient to his Father in every way, and then he went to the cross, and he didn't just go to the cross. He wasn't there by accident. He didn't end up there because he was an attempted revolutionary. No, he said, I'm I'm particularly, decisively marching toward Jerusalem. I want to go there. I intend to go there. And so that nobody would mistake the purpose of his work on the cross, he said, here's what's going to be happening when I'm on the cross. I'll be ransoming sinners for God. I'll be buying you to belong to him. And then he rises again from the dead. That's the central message of the gospel. It centers on what Christ has done. He's the only one. The, The gospel message, the central story of the Christian faith is that Jesus is the only Savior God has sent. He's the only one who's ever coming. He's the only hope of the world. He's the only one in whom we have life. He's the only one who can forgive our sins. He's the only one who's conquered death. He's the Savior. His kingdom is unstoppable. He brings us into an unstoppable kingdom. The people over whom he rules are blessed They know joy. Joy is coming from outside this world into them. Hope is coming from outside of this world into their lives, into their souls, from the inexhaustible resources of God himself. It's a supernatural thing, the Christian life. So how'd you get in? If you're a believer in Jesus and you came into this world dead in sin with no interest in God, how'd you get here? This is in your notes. If you find Jesus compelling and worth living for, God made that happen. God made that happen. He, Paul says, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we've been saved. The gospel, friends, is the message through which the Holy Spirit turns the lights on. You were in the dark. You were stumbling and bumbling. So was I. The Holy Spirit, through the proclamation of the gospel, flipped on the lights and suddenly you see. What do you see? Jesus, and you don't just see him, you want him. You can't not run in his direction. There's an utter transformation. Suddenly, his commands aren't killjoy. They're the essence of wisdom. 
They're the guardrails to life and blessing and joy. Suddenly, his promises stick to you. They're holding you fast through trials, right? The, the promise of his presence with you, the promise of his return. We sang about this a moment ago. Well, we're asking these questions. Is all creation groaning? And we all say, yes. Is a new creation coming? It is. We're reminding ourselves of these truths. The Christian life, friends, is supernatural. It is not a makeover. It is a resurrection. That's why he uses this language. You've been born again. You have totally new life that you didn't have before. Here's the question for you. Has the gospel done that to you? Has it gone on fire in your insides? Has it planted in your soul the conviction that Jesus is better than this world? That he outlasts this world? Is it making, is that hope making the words of scripture leap off the page? with life-transforming power, is this gospel, this message that's gone on fire in your hearts, is it injecting daily, injecting purpose into your life, your relationships, your work, your art? Last night, we had the privilege, my wife and I, of going and watching uh, a ballet at Briarwood, and it was, um, it was about the story of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And just to see the, the beautiful display of the connection between the gospel and how that story is told in word and in dance, you see this way in which the gospel doesn't just open our eyes to things that happen in church, it opens our eyes to, to everything God has done in Christ and where he's taking the world, where he's taking history, changes our entire perspective about this world, I love what Peter says happens after we respond to the truth. And by the way, we're called to respond to the truth. It's not just a message that's meant to pass by our ears. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. It's a gospel that's calling you, hey, come, come get this. Obey the truth, respond to the truth, run in the direction of the truth. And that response, what, what happens? What happens when you run in the direction of this gospel news? Peter says, you get, you get a cleansing. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. And it's not, it's not a one-time cleansing that, that fades and you just try, try to stay fairly clean the rest of the way. There's this continual shower over the life of the believer, the gospel keeps showering our lives and washing us clean day by day by day. This cleansing work the gospel does on day one, but it continues. Matter of fact, the, even the tense of the verb in this passage, the verb purified, it's a tense that means this is something that happened in the past but has continuing effects into the present. You are being still just constantly washed and cleansed and purified through this good news. You know, sometimes, sometimes parents go through a phase. Um, we've heard this, of course, from other parents. We've not really seen this in our own lives. But sometimes we hear parents will go through a phase. It, it tends to often be in connection with adolescent boys or teenage boys where parents find themselves asking this question. When's the last time you bathed? Right? 
And sometimes the answer that comes to that question will shake you to your core, right? Because maybe you expected you know, this morning or, or maybe even yesterday sometime, right? But the answer comes back, and it's an internal convulsion to hear what the date was, what was the last day this child was in the water, right? And your immediate response is one of two things. One, how can you live this way, right? And two, you must tell no one outside of this house <laughs> that it's permitted for you to go that many days without a shower. And third, take a shower. Like now, I'm going to turn the water on. It starts now, right? If, uh, if you grew up in the uh, 1980s like me, um, there was probably a brief period of time when you thought the most dangerous person on the planet, the best fighter, was a teenager named Daniel LaRusso. Uh, played by Ralph Macchio in the book, The Karate Kid. And you were craning on people all over the place, right? And you, maybe you got, who knows how many kids got beat up that year because they thought the crane actually worked as a move. It's kind of telegraphing it just a little bit, right? Here, here's, if you've ever seen the movie, you know that Daniel, uh, he goes to a dance and he's trying to kind of hide his identity at this dance. And so does anybody know what his costume is? Yeah, it's a shower. So there's a, there's a shower curtain all the way around. And there's kind of the pipes up above holding the curtain there. And so it's a mobile shower. Of course, the illustration breaks down because it wasn't a shower that actually worked. There was no water coming out. of It It was just, you know, fake pipes and, and drapes, right, or curtains. Sadly, that illustration actually works for much of what passes for Christianity. It's just, it's just fake pipes and curtains, right? There's no water. There's no actual cleansing that's happening. Friend, maybe, maybe God brought you here this morning just to hear this one thing, that the gospel provides cleansing from sin, and you can have it. The water is flowing. It's not just pipes and drapes. The water is flowing. Gospel, good news. Jesus atoning for our sins, covering our unrighteousness, washing our shame out, washing our guilt out. And Peter says, be obedient to the truth. I would say that to you this morning. Run in the direction of that truth. Run toward the water. It's there, your cleansing is waiting for you. Welcome the truth all the way in. Put your life under new management. That's just a number of different ways of saying, turn to Christ, embrace him as Lord and Savior. And then what happens? So God's word gives you life. Second, God's word deepens our love. God's word deepens our love. This whole passage hinges on one primary command, and the primary command is love one another constantly. Or the English Standard Version, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. How do we know that God's word has moved in? How do we know we're not just drapes and fake piping? of Christian religion? How do we know there's something real that's happened? According to this text, the best evidence that we're deep in God's word is the depth of our love for brothers and sisters in Christ. So look, if you're looking for a metric, this gives us that metric. The best evidence that we're deep in God's word is the depth of our love. You ever met somebody who touts themselves as deep in the word, but all their relationships are broken? 
and they're throwing people under the bus and they're comparing themselves favorably against others. Whenever they bring somebody else into the picture, I always look better than the other person who I've just brought into the picture. Peter wants a word. He's not the only one. The Apostle John wants a word as well. He'll emphasize the same things. Here's the point in your notes. Real depth in the word shows up in real love for our brothers and sisters. Real love for our brothers and sisters. And it's important that he says, for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly. He hasn't marched that church out into the world yet. He's going to do that. We're going to look at that next week. Next week, we're going to go missional. But for now, he's saying, it's got to be real in here. We're called to be family. We're brothers and sisters. You know what? If we get outside in the world and we say we're family, they're going to smell if it's not real. They'll be like, okay, it, it looks like you love us, but it actually feels like a project because none of you seem to love each other. And Jesus set it up that way, right? Peter was there 35 years ago when Jesus said, here's how it stacks up. Here's how the world's going to know it's real. They're going to know the Father sent me into the world. They're going to know you're my disciples by what? The love you have for one another. That's why Peter's striking the same tone. The Apostle John did the same thing. The Apostle John was there 35 years earlier when Jesus said that. And so the Apostle John says this, 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So we're talking about the same thing Peter's talking about, rebirth. And everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. And you know John is eventually going to say that really hard truth. Don't tell me you love God if you hate your brother. If you don't love your brother. Look, when, when things get tough, who are we quickest to lash out at? Outsiders or family? It's family, right? Family sometimes gets the best of us and often gets the worst of us. I was reading a great book last year, Jen Wilkin. It's about how to study the word. It's called Women of the Word, uh, which is a little awkward to read that in a waiting room, Women of the Word right there on the cover. But in any case, it's a super book, maybe one of the best books I've read on how to study and benefit from Scripture. Jen Wilkins, a solid author and solid teacher of God's word. And uh, uh, anyway, she talks about this truth. She illustrates this truth in, in a wonderful way. She talks about when she and her family went on a trip to Disney. Anybody went on the trip to Disney, right? Where you go in and it's magical on the way in. And something happens after lunch. Something happens on day three or four that just doesn't feel magical, right? Um, well, she saw that play out right in front of her, and she said, there was a lot of she said there was a lot of pressure on the family because this was one of those things. She said, my dad decided he was going to pay for all of us to go to Disney, so, so grandpa's all in, and she said, we told our kids, like, this is a mandatory have fun moment. Like, we are having fun the whole time because grandpa is all in with the Disney thing. She says, so we're, we're three days into the trip, it's two o'clock in the afternoon, and there's a four-year-old in front of us who is absolutely losing his mind, going berserk and um, uncontrollable, and the mom is just trying to kind of bring him along, and, uh, and it's not working, and she says, then the mom just, the bottom falls out, and she leans down to this four-year-old boy, and she says this, we have paid thousands and thousands of dollars to be here. <laughs> Pull
pull it together is literally what she said to this, this boy, right? That, that's when you know the magic has officially left. It is gone, right? Families see us in our good moments and our not-so-good moments. The, the word translated love one another earnestly is a, it's a powerful word, um, It's the same word in the original language that's used to translate the way that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed earnestly. He prayed constantly. And if you're familiar with the scene of the Garden of Gethsemane, he's sweating drops of blood. He's falling down. He's saying to his brothers, watch with me. I need you in here, right? This is Jesus praying earnestly. That's why in your notes we've got this. This love is a stretching, straining kind of love. It's not, it's not convenient. It's selfless. It does not insist on its own way love. It it's comes out of pocket love. It's not passive. It's absorbing offenses love. And that's why he's saying, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another constantly. Love one another earnestly. Spill blood in your love for one another. Strain in the direction of your brothers and sisters. Stretch in their direction for their good. These things are connected here. I love how I. Howard Marshall, New Testament commentator, pulls this all together. He says, when we hear the word of God and respond to it with faith, it takes root in our lives and new birth takes place. So there's new birth. But Peter also is saying that the quality of our love must be persistent and enduring precisely because the new life given by God is everlasting. You see what he's doing there? He's saying, remember, you've been born, again, through a living and enduring word, and therefore, what should that produce in your love for one another? Living and enduring love. Constant love. In other words, you you bring this passage together, a summary of the message is, I've been made new in order to love you my brothers and sisters. That's what it's there for, earnestly from the heart. Third, God's word makes us grow. God's word makes us grow. So right after he talks about how God's word, living and enduring word, and after he says this is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you, he says put away all malice. This is why as a church we we talk about as our first pursuit, we pursue transformation. How do we pursue it? We pursue transformation by abiding biblically, by abiding in the word of God. This passage isn't just saying put away malice and envy and deceit and hypocrisy and so forth. It's, it's, a, it's a metaphor, right? In the original context, it's a metaphor for discarding old clothing, dirty, soiled clothes. This passage is basically saying there are some things you used to wear that you shouldn't wear anymore. Um, Last year was the 25th year high school reunion for me. I wasn't able to go, but I saw pictures. And interesting thing is, 
none of the athletes were wearing their Letterman jackets, which it would be odd if they were, right? One, it probably wouldn't fit. But here's, you know, the other thing is it'd just be odd if you were still trying to rock your letter jacket when you're in your 40s, right? That, that thing fit you, and it was, it was right when you were 17, but it's not, it's not right now, right? It doesn't feel the same now. I, I, took, um, I took my senior picture, high school graduate <laughs> senior picture, in a, uh, a silk suit, and... Uh, so about 10 years after that picture was taken, I was going to go preach at my mom's church in Texas. And we're, we're driving to Texas, and mom tells me, she says, um, I, I put an ad in the paper that you were going to come preach just so that people could invite, you know, people in the community could come out and listen. And, it's, and she's like, you're going to love it. It's Pastor Matt Mason is coming in, and he's going to come preach God's word at Living Waters Worship Center at 9 o'clock and, you know, all the stuff. And I, I get there, and mom has already cut the clipping of the paper out, and it's me in the suit. <laughs> it's a purple silk suit. And I have a silk shirt with giant music notes all over it. And I looked in absolute disbelief. And I'm like, are you messing with me? Like, surely you didn't, you didn't put this in the paper, Mom. I, I can't go down like this. This can't be what people expect to see when they come on Sunday morning, please. There are some things we wore earlier that we're not supposed to wear now. Uh, th this passage... It's about identity. This passage is saying there's some stuff that fits you great before you knew Jesus. You wore malice. It was your native tongue. Slander, boasting, envy, hypocrisy, that all came so naturally. You wore it perfectly in the world. But now you're in Christ. You came up out of the water. You don't wear that anymore. So out it goes. You discard all your old clothes. And I love how, how all-inclusive that is. He said, put away all malice, all envy, hypocrisy, slander. All of it goes. Doesn't belong here anymore because you're not that anymore. God made you something different. You've been reborn. As Christians, we don't just put those things off. We put something on in its place. So you just think about, for every one of those prohibitions or something to put off, imagine him saying, put on the opposite. So what is he saying? Clothe yourself, not with malice, but with goodwill. Not with deceit, but with truth. Not with hypocrisy, but authenticity. Not envy, but generosity. Not slander, but encouragement. Here's a question for us. Are you alive to God's word? If, if that is a list of demonstrations of what it means to be alive to God's word, are you alive? Are you leaning into your life? Are you, as Eugene Peterson said many years ago, are you practicing resurrection? Are you putting on these new identities? That, that's how you know. Notice how Peter connects verse 1 and verse 2. You're discarding these old habits and you're craving God's word. Put all this away and like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk of God's word that by it you may grow up into salvation. He's using this metaphor of what? It's, it's, a, it's a metaphor of nursing. 
of a nursing infant at its mother's breast, right? That's, that's the metaphor he's working with. The milk of the word, baby Christians, drinking it in, getting stronger. Uh, Jesus has a, an awkward post-sermon comment that comes to him in Luke chapter 11. He brings a wonderful message. And, uh, and then we read these words, Luke 27. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. Happy Mother's Day, right? That's a, that's a great text. Um, that might be next year's passage. Who knows? But listen, th- th- those words weren't culturally inappropriate. Jesus wasn't thrown off. That, that didn't face him at all. And you know what he did? He actually rode the coattails of that image and he, he pivoted just a little bit. He said, he said this, but he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. What's he doing? He's saying, I like your talk about birth and sustenance, and I want to connect that to the word of God. Blessed are those who hear it, come alive to it, and those who are sustained, who keep it, who are nourished by it. Peter's doing the same thing. He was there, right, in Luke 11. And so what's he saying? He's, he's a chip off the old block, right? He's picking up the very same language of the one who mentored and discipled him, his Lord and Savior. He says, you've been born again. You got new life. You've been born through the word of God. And like newborn infants, you crave the milk of God's word. It's your birth and it's your sustenance. So here's the next question. Are you feeding on God's word? Are you feeding on God's word? church, listen, this, this will sustain you. This, these are words from God. God speaks. You you read this, you're wearing headphones hearing God's voice. This is our hope in the midst of trials. This is nourishment and strength for us. This is our food and our milk. This is where we grow. This is our life. You know, um, Today is not an easy day for many people. And by that, I mean Mother's Day. I I know mothers, and I'm sure there are many that I'm unaware of. I know many mothers who have lost children. I know women who battle infertility. I know girls, daughters, who have lost their mothers. I know mothers who are estranged from their children, or children who are maybe estranged from their mothers. That, that's a reality on days like today. This world is so broken that even a day that's intended to be a moment of celebration and blessing becomes for others the hardest day of the year. That's how fractured it is since the fall. There's no way to get away from the minor key music of this broken, fallen world And then for for moms in the room who maybe haven't walked through or or struggling with the pain of motherhood and the topic of motherhood on one hand, maybe others haven't felt some of those pangs and aches and trials. Maybe for you today is is a wonderful blessing and the rain is falling on the fields of your labor as a mother and it's a day of encouragement for you. Praise God, right? Here's the thing, whichever side of that you're on, 
What you need is a living word. You need a living word that can sustain you, that can steady your hand on the plow of your ministry, that can stabilize you in your season and station of life that you didn't think you'd ever be in, but you are here now, that can bring comfort to you in the midst of your trials. You need a sustaining, living, enduring word that gets you in its grip and holds you fast. But what happens first? Before that hope comes breaking in on our lives, we, we're called to be obedient to the gospel. We're called to embrace this Jesus as Lord and Savior, to turn to him, to walk toward life, right? The, to embrace him as the one who died to give us God, the one who died to forgive us our sins, the one who died to give us life and hope. And then embracing him, here comes, here comes the resources of God, his presence for his people. What does God's word do? Two things. It gives us life in this text, and it gives you family. It gives you brothers and sisters who will walk with you through whatever happens today, whatever happens tomorrow. You imagine that new believer. Let's go back to the water. Imagine that brand new believer still wet from the waters of baptism, declaring her faith in Jesus Christ in the face of a culture that's hostile to the gospel. What do you say to her? She says, what now? What do you say to her? You say, listen, God gave you this life you have. He brought you to new life. That's what this thing just represented just now. He made you alive to God. He planted living hope in your soul. It's imperishable. That seed can't die. And now, you know what he gives you? He gives you a community. He gives you brothers and sisters. You get to learn how to love, and they're gonna learn how to love. And that same word that gave you imperishable, eternal life is gonna fuel a life of love towards your new brothers and sisters, this community of faith. And then out y'all will go into the community bearing witness to what God has done and the hope that we have in Christ. And then the world's gonna see the way that we love one another, and it's gonna, the gospel's gonna ring credible. It's gonna ring true. It wasn't popular in Peter's day and age to become a Christian. You read the stories in the book of Acts. The only people who are putting their faith and trust in Jesus are the ones who are daring, the ones who are risking their lives to believe in Christ. It's not a soft faith. It was not a nominal faith. And yet what you see is these people entering into new life displaying new love in a new kind of community, and the Roman Empire, as it were, looks in on this glass house that was the early church, and they're looking in, pressed up against the glass, saying, what is that? What, what is he doing? Selling a field and giving money to supply for the poor in their midst? What are they doing? Giving equal place to the rich and the poor? Saying that the gospel equalizes everything, there's neither slave nor free, male nor female, Rich nor poor, everything's been changed. They're looking in with absolute curiosity, and it's like a magnet pulling a watching world. Something different happens in here. There's life in here. There's love in here. I've, I've seen God do this. I've had front row seats to see God do this in people's lives. I've got a picture here this morning of some friends of ours from New Orleans that we've known for many years. This is Lester and Janine, and... Uh, it was almost like if we're thinking of the gospel coming in contact with people as a kind of birthing room experience, 
my wife and I had the privilege and joy of, of being in the birthing room when they came to life in Christ many years ago, and they weren't believing it, they weren't hearing it, they had heard weeks and weeks and weeks of gospel proclamation, and then we were at a particular event, and they were listening to a speaker talk about the nature of the church. He had already talked weeks before about the cross, about forgiveness, he had talked about that for weeks, they were unfazed. And then he talked about the nature of the church, and we were sitting at a table with Lester and Janine, he's a construction project manager, she's a doctor, and uh, they had been unfazed all the way up to that moment. And when he described that our, our church had just lost a woman who we had been praying for 24-hour vigils for a long period of time that God would heal her from cancer because she had two young daughters, her husband Shane, and we were praying and we were begging God, please heal this woman. And she died and our church buckled. It rocked our congregation. And this pastor told that story to a room full of people, most of whom were not believers. And he, then he changed subjects and he talked about what the church had done in that context. And then he left that and went to some other things. And as soon as he had finished his talk and we went to table conversations, Janine leaned in, tears in her eyes, and she said, is that true? D does it really look that way? And Paul and I said, why don't you come and see? Why don't you start coming and engaging and let's introduce you to some of our friends and people who follow Jesus. And she got close enough and they started coming to church Sunday after Sunday and they started to hear it and see it for themselves, the relationships within the body of Christ. And that only took a period of a few weeks and then I remember the gospel was presented on a Sunday morning and I'll never forget, Janine was up in the balcony. She didn't wait for Lester. She barreled down. She's an extremely quiet person. She could not be stopped. She came and ran forward. She wanted to trust in Christ. They've been small group leaders now at that church for over 10 years. Utterly transformed. You know what did it? You know what pulled them in? The compelling community of faith. The people of God loving one another earnestly, straining in one another's directions, stretching, selfless, caring, praying, burden-bearing people. You, you read the book of Hebrews and you learn something. I'm not going to reach the end without you. We need community of faith. That's what you hear. Throughout the book of Hebrews, it's like they're yelling, no one is going to be left behind. You hear me? You're not falling back. You're entangled. Your ankles are entangled with sin. We're going to get that off. We are moving forward. We are marching all the way home. We're going to make it. You hear me? And all the way through this letter, you got comrades yelling in each other's face, holding on to their brothers and sisters. We're going to make it. This community of love and perseverance. You are, friends, family members, you are an indispensable part of my perseverance in the faith. And the brothers and sisters in this room are going to be an indispensable part of your perseverance in the faith. So let's love the word. Let's be the church. Let's show the world a new kind of community.